lot of people know about Fort Kent, but for those that don't, we get a population of just a little under 4,000. So really small town. I was blown away by this community where it's run by many, many small businesses. There's a lot of logging. We have a small college here, decent sized hospital. You know, there's such a huge support pool here that it's almost like no one business fails. It seems everyone's always helping each other out. And, and those big businesses that do well are, are always donating. And, and it's not that we necessarily need all that financial support, but over the years, we've, we've had big money donated just, just to help out on projects. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, sticking with our summer indie theme today. And moving over to Maine, we'll get to that. But first, a reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. That is the heart of this whole operation. To get the full experience, you can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. Issue 195 dropped last month, and I've now read this thing cover to cover. You want summer adventure reading? This is it. There is a long read on the magic of skiing in Chile, which is an excerpt from Peter Cray's upcoming novel, The Ghost Hotel. There's also a long meditation by John McLean on how fishing Montana rivers knits a family together across generations. And Shannon Rogie writes about the psychological fallout from the late plague of fires descending on California's Sonoma Valley wine country. That's just the beginning. If you subscribe today, you may still be able to get a copy of 195. So head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 49, Mike Levertu, President of the Board of Directors of Lonesome Pine, Maine. Think of Maine skiing, and you probably think about the big ones. And why not? Sugarloaf, Sunday River, and Saddleback are three of the best ski areas in New England. But Maine is a rich ski state, and it's lucky to have a lot of tiny by comparison community ski areas like Lost Valley, Big Rock, New Herman Mountain, and yes, Lonesome Pine. Whether you've ever been to or even heard of these places doesn't matter. They're important. They're important to their communities and they're important to skiing. I love big ski areas, love getting lost at them, but we couldn't have big ski areas without small ski areas. And today I want to talk about a great small ski area. And what I want to emphasize before we even get started here is that this is not some hard luck story of a ski area barely hanging out in the wilderness or some place that came back from the ashes. Lonesome Pine is an example of what can exist when a community and a group of locals cares about a place and invests in it across generations. Let's hear it. My guest today is the president of the board of directors of Lonesome Pine Trails in Fort Kent, Maine. Lonesome Pine has 13 trails on a 500-foot vertical drop, served by a 1960s Hall T-Bar. It is the northernmost ski area in New England, overlooking the St. John River, which divides the United States and Canada. Lonesome Pine is a nonprofit ski area that is entirely owned by its members. 
He is also an Alpine ski coach of the Valley Racing Team and a master electrician who owned his own business in Fort Kent before taking on the position of electrical supervisor at Twin Rivers Paper Company. Mike Livertu is my guest. Mike, so good to have you on the program today. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Mike, it's really interesting. As I said in the intro, uh, you're not a ski guy by trade, and, and most of the folks who I interview are doing this for a living, and, and they're in skiing full-time. Uh, Lonesome Pine seems like a labor of love for you, but tell us a little bit more about your work as an electrician and, and what you do over there at the paper company. Uh, yeah, so at the paper company, I, uh, one of the electrical supervisors, so basically manage a handful of men and, uh, you know, just everyday operation stuff, uh, organizing, planning, shutdowns, things like that. So it is different than when I was running my business, um, totally different, but it's still in the electrical field and, and that's kind of, kind of my love. And, and I, I get to still get my hands dirty, uh, really volunteering mostly at the, uh, at the Hill. And, um, you know, I do a little bit of side work here and there, but, um, it's been really great getting some projects done at Lonesome Pine over the last, uh, five, six years, we've done some pretty big projects and really got to use my skills there. So been enjoying that. So you have this trade and it's a, it's a skill that is very valuable, obviously. Um, but you also have this side love for Lonesome Pine. So how did you get involved with Lonesome Pine? Well, actually I grew up skiing and, and you may have asked me this later, um, in a, at a small hill, a little bit bigger than Lonesome Pines actually in, uh, in New Brunswick, Canada called, uh, Mount Farline. And grew up racing there, skiing. Before Kent was only a half hour away where I, from where I grew up in Madawaska. And uh, the hill in, in Canada was actually 15 minutes away, even crossing the border. Um, but I did get married to a girl from Fort Kent, so I ended up moving here. And uh, I did ski here when I was younger a little bit. But um, so really settled in. And uh, we actually live on top of the mountain here, but not really quick access, but... I mean, it's a skip of a drive down to the bottom and, um, our kids actually can, can ski home in the back Nordic trails, right to the, right to the house. So that's kind of cool. But, um, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 um, I started skiing here when, once, you know, I moved to Fort Kent quite a bit more and every year, um, it's probably about nine years ago, I got more involved. Um, I was helping out with, the, um, the, the race program that they had, it was just a very, uh, kind of like a hill, small hill program, maybe lasted a month or so. And, uh, there was quite a bit of kids and, um, we had a group of parents with kids all about the same age or probably like eight, eight of us parents decided that we were going to really grow that or kind of branch out and grow the program. And we decided to start our own racing club. And, um, you know, we basically do kids from 6 to 14. Uh, I think this year was our seventh season or, or six maybe. And, um, you know, there's a couple of years we had close to 50 kids. And, and we, you know, we live in a pretty small town. So uh, it was good. And we had a lot of help from parents. Like I said, it's totally volunteer. Um, now it's mostly just my wife and I that are coaching. We do have, uh, another, uh, parent that I grew up racing with in, in, in Canada, uh, Tom Levac, who, um, helps us out quite a bit. 
And, um, but yeah, we all work full-time jobs and we just do this part-time and volunteer. So, but we, we really enjoy it. So let's talk a little bit more about that racing program for a moment. What does that circuit look like? Because if you look at Lonesome Pine on the map, as I mentioned, it's the northernmost ski area in New England. So, so who are these kids competing against? Yeah, we, we don't, uh, you know, we, we probably could compete at the USSA level, but we have a small kind of club level where it's small mount, small mountains like ours. Um, you got like Herman Mountain, Bangor. Uh, we have um, Greenville, which is uh, Squaw, which I think will be changing names soon. So we, we, we travel there. Um, and there's also uh, Big Rock in Marcel, Maine, which is only about uh, an hour, an hour and a half from us. And we've hit, uh, let's see, there's a, um, in Auburn, I'm not thinking of the name right now, uh, Lost Valley in Auburn. We've been there before and we're really excited to, um, try to get to Rangeley, which is quite a ways from us, probably about six hour drive, but totally worth it. So we're hoping to hook up with their race program. Uh, they just, you know, opened back up. So, uh, we really didn't travel at all this winter. We, we just trained like crazy. Uh, we had a couple local races just with our team. Uh, but the kids got a lot of training, but we're looking forward to, um, also trying to hit Saddleback. And, you know, we don't typically go to the big mountains like Sugarloaf, Sunday River, only because distance and those races are usually kind of a little bit upper level. Not that our kids couldn't compete there, but we just don't want to go to that level. But, um, but yeah, we, we've, we've put out some really good racers and believe it or not, this, this small hill with not much pitch, um, we have two racers that are now at uh, CVA. They're going into their sophomore years, so they were there last year, and um, and and they're they're rocking it. I mean, we got one kid at his in his age group that's number one in the country. So, mm. um, and then another uh, that that boy's Caden um, Terrio, and then we got a, a Will Roy, also from Fort Kent, that's you know top five, top ten in 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 the U.S. So really impressive. And those boys work hard and they all started right here in Fort Kent. And it's, it's just, it's amazing to, to think that, you know, they're going that far with it. So it's great. That's, that's incredible, Mike. And it's, it's interesting to hear about the evolution of that program. So what did it look like when you showed up and, and how has uh, Lone Supine managed to evolve that into, into what it is today? Um, are you talking about the race program or are you just the race talk- program? Yes. Yeah, the race program. It, it really wasn't a race program. It was actually called um, junior ski. So it was more like not really a ski school. We really don't even have a ski school. We have, um, we have a few instructors that will take appointments basically. So, Hey, you know, we'd like to do a lesson. Okay. And it's, it's not really anything formal, but we always have a couple of people on standby just to do lessons here and there. Um, but that, uh, junior race program was something that would start kind of mid to late February and pretty much go for about a month. Like I said, and I was used to racing, you know, as soon as there was snow, we'd be out there when I was a kid and and we'd train as long as we could. So I wasn't, I just couldn't understand why, Hey, we got snow here. Why aren't we in gates and training and stuff? So, so we basically, that's like I said earlier with the group of parents said, Hey, let's, let's expand this. Let's start you know, in, in December and do a Christmas camp or a race camp during Christmas vacation and, and, uh, start traveling to races. Um, and, and it just 
kind of took off from there and we had more and more interest every year. Um, you know, and, and it's fairly inexpensive. I mean, the kids join for, uh, it's like 175 bucks a year. They train, uh, two nights and one Saturday morning all, all winter long. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a great opportunity and it's basically a feeder program for our, our high school, uh, ski team. So once they leave eighth grade, they'll typically go to the freshman year and compete at the high school level, which, you know, at that point they're totally ready and they usually do pretty well at, at the, at the high school level. Does that high school team also train at Lonesome Pine? They do. And, um, we typically train the same time. We'll set like two courses basically on the same trail and, um, and they do train at Lonesome Pines, but they're, they're typically, we, we train on Saturday mornings and they're typically having a race, you know, every, every Saturday in the winter for, for a little while, but we'll actually go into March, end of March, um, where they will, high school will be done like in February, February break. So, so we, we do have quite a, quite a long season. So it sounds like you've really built up a, a great race program there and built that feeder into the high school program. How did you get involved, Mike, with the board of Lonesome Pine? Yeah. So like I said, I, I, every year that I, since I, I moved here, I got more and more involved. And, um, and obviously when I did move here, I, I had my electrical business and um, I was helping out. I was doing some stuff here all the time. And then I started to notice, you know, that some of their equipment was in, you know, some desperate repair. Um, we did have uh, a great uh, maintenance person that was real great. We just, he did everything, you know, he was, uh, he was an old farmer that kind of got out of farming and basically did this in the winters. And um, so he did a great job, but you know, he couldn't do it all. So there were some electrical things that, that really needed some upgrading. So I kind of started helping out slowly and, um, just basically, you know, the hill would buy the materials. I would provide the labor. Um, one of the first big projects that we did was, uh, we upgraded the, the T-bar, uh, drive system where it was old contactors and, uh, just, just really, everything was just real old. And we changed that out to kind of a modern, uh, soft start, which is not like a VFD drive, but a soft start, which, you know, kind of was an easier start for the riders. Let's say somebody would hit the stop button at the bottom and they'd go to take off instead of launching them up the mountain there, like a slingshot, <laughs> it would kind of gradually uh, take them off. So that was a nice upgrade and it, and it just helped the efficiency of the lift and, um, and kind of, I think kind of helped the motor out for a while and gained some years on it. Um, so it, it was kind of when, once I started volunteering a lot that, they're like, Hey, you know, you should think about joining the board and, you know, you can get more involved and see what's going on. And, uh, it was just kind of like a perfect fit where I would be more involved with the projects and I can kind of dictate or help dictate what, what we could do to, to improve things. Um, another huge project we did was, uh, we, we pretty much upgraded, um, a good part of the electrical system where we had to reroute our main power coming in just because one of the poles was right near the lodge. It just was a big mess. It looked real kind of cluttered. And so we rerouted all that and uh, put in some new uh, three phase entrance and a new single phase entrance and just uh, really cleaned it up and had a lot of help though. A lot of volunteer help 
to do that since it was such a, a large project. But, but again, all volunteer, just, we bought the materials. We, we pretty much, uh, you know, the LPT paid, you know, for all the materials out of pocket and we just got the job done and it was a pretty sizable project. So, so that's helped us out. Um, and, and in the past on that upgrade, we, we would not have been able to run the lift and make snow at the same time, mm-hmm. just because the capacity okay. wasn't there for power. So once we upgraded that, we, we did have that ability where we could, you know, open up the, uh, the lift and, and make snow on a certain trail, you know, at the same time. So that, that was a, that was a big plus. Yeah. So the theme I'm hearing here is a lot of volunteer work, uh, a, a lot of, of folks jumping in to help out. So, so let's back up here and talk a little bit about Lonesome Pine because it's a very unique ski area in the way that it's managed uh, and, and in the way and in its ownership structure. So, so you mentioned that Lonesome Pine is owned by members. So tell us what, what that means exactly, Mike. So is this a, a co-op model like Mad River Glen in which members own shares and then they vote on, on what happens or, or is this something different? Yeah, it's a little different. Um, basically, we just have a managing board, which is the board of directors. And um, I, I think we're, how many members? We're about eight, eight or so members. And, uh, uh, you know, w- we do not own shares, though. The members, uh, basically, as long as you're a pass holder, you're basically a member, uh, but not technically an owner, but you're a member. So what that means is when it comes time for um, the annual membership meeting, or say, we'll talk about it later, but we, you know, the purchase of a, of a large piece of equipment like the groomer, you know, we, we have to have a board meeting on that. And, and we kind of like whoever wants to come ask questions. Uh, and, and when we decide as a kind of as a community and, and the membership. So there is no one owner. Um, Lonesome Pine Trails owns the land. Uh, the, the town of Fort Kent does do a lot for us. So they help us out. They plow our, our parking lot. It's an agreement they made, you know, quite a few years back. And so, um, yeah, it, it, like I said, it's, uh, it's very unique and, and, um, it's kind of, it's kind of different. It's one of the first questions I asked when I got on the board. I was like, so who actually owns this place anyway? And, and <laughs> people ask me all the time and I'm like, well, it's members, all the pass holders. And it's kind of hard to wrap your head around that, but that's, that's how it's been. And it's worked out. It's worked out great. Let's talk about the volunteers then. help us understand how much does Lonesome Pine rely on volunteers to run, to update, to just do day-to-day operations and what sort of work do the volunteers do? Yeah. As far as day-to-day operations, um, you know, we really, uh, uh, with the exception of last winter, (laughs) we didn't do a whole lot on the day-to-day. Um, but last winter threw us quite a few curveballs with COVID and and we had some, um, we had one of our key members, um, kind of somewhat retire because of COVID and, and, you know, um, so last year we, we actually did do quite a bit. Uh, we were there doing maintenance. We were helping out with the tea bar maintenance, changing teas. And, um, but on a regular year where we, we had our experienced guys and we had experienced lift operators, uh, we really were pretty well hands, hands off. We, we could make decisions from the background. Um, when they needed something to come see us, Hey, we, we need this tool. We need this part. Can we order it? Um, so we were not as involved, uh, except for, like I said, the volunteering effort. So, um, 
you know, we, we, we do have a lot of volunteers for snowmaking, which I think we'll talk about some more. Uh, so that, that part, you know, there, there were a few key people that we were paying to, uh, for the snowmaking, but I would say 80% to 90% of that has always been volunteer effort. Um, and then again, we, we do pay our lift operators, uh, which this year with COVID we had, like I said, a few key members, uh, kind of not return. And, and we, we had a lot of new faces running the hill and there was a lot of young, uh, high school guys really, uh, running the lifts. And, um, we had a new kind of maintenance guy and, and a groomer operator that kind of did the same job there. We shared the, the lift up, the, uh, grooming job. So it was very new to, to him. And he also had a full-time job uh, teaching. So it was very, uh, very demanding for him. So, so we, we, you know, we had to step in and help out quite a bit and, um, it made for an interesting, uh, interesting season, but we, we really pulled it off and, you know, it was one of our best seasons on record as far as, um, membership and membership passes and daily passes. And we just, we really had a good season, you know, amid all the COVID struggles. Yeah, that's echoing themes I'm hearing a lot throughout the Northeast and really the country is, you know, a lot of things were closed indoors and you didn't have your options of going to the movies or going out to eat or whatever. So a lot of folks would look, hey, what can we do outside? I'm glad to hear that that pushed some folks up to Lonesome Pine. So is there, Mike, is there like a general manager or someone in charge of the Hill that's paid to do that job? Yeah, it's, it's again, another interesting position. Um and it and it did evolve over the years and and again i've only been here for less than 10 years so i'm not as well versed as as others might be on this but i do know that uh our our current manager which kind of manages typically would be managing the lodge and um and the kitchen um so so we you know he would be our manager that's that's mike Boisin. And interestingly enough, he also runs the kitchen on his own dime, basically. So that's a separate entity. And uh, but he also manages our day-to-day operations for lift tickets, lodge rentals, and uh, and things like that. So he had to step up his game quite a bit this year, only only because we we lost our maintenance guy. So he ended up helping out with scheduling a lot of the hill operations, and so he had a big job this year. Um, so he would be our, our manager. And um, and then in the past years, we had our operations manager, which would be the outdoor crew, scheduling, grooming, maintenance. And that that man uh, was Daryl Bossy, and he, he was amazing. Like I said, the guy could fix anything. Um, and, and it just, everything ran, no matter what. It's just, everything was always running. So the only time he called me was when he was stumped on an electrical issue and didn't happen often, but every once in a while. Um, and then, you know, we do have some other key members, one of them, um, being the treasurer that's, that's been around for many, many years. And his name's Danny Nicholas. Now he's, you know, way beyond retirement age. He's well into his seventies. And, uh, he's one of the reasons that over the years, along with many other people, but has, uh, you know, put away money. Uh, they, they did have tough years back, you know, back in the day where they just, you just scrape by. And then, so on those years that we did well, Danny was uh, instrumental in, in kind of tucking money away here and there and 
we keep hearing of these CDs all over the place that, that nobody really knows about, but we got savings all over the place. So it's kind of cool. Um, so, so Danny's actually, um, you know, looking to move on and we're, we're probably going to, uh, replace him this year with, with one of our current board members. Um, but again, I mean, he's done such a great job and over the years and been there many years and, and has been great for the mountain. Let's talk about those finances a little bit, Mike, just because I, I think there's a perception uh, that a lot of these small community areas are struggling or losing money or need to be subsidized and that they're having a really hard time in the mega resort conglomeration era. But you're telling me a different story from from what you told me in email. So so talk about the financial state of Lonesome Pine as it is today. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people know about Fort Kent, but... For those that don't, um, we got a population of just a little under 4,000. So really small town, but uh, just for me growing up in, in Madawaska, which again is just neighboring, not far over Milltown, um, I, I was blown away by this community where it's run by many, many small businesses. Um, you know, like a lot of smaller town uh, ski areas, there's there's a lot of logging. It's a big logging industry in this town, which branches out into a lot of smaller uh, businesses. And then we have a we have a small college here, University of Maine, Fort Kent, and we also have a decent sized hospital, and you know, obviously the schools. So all those little entities um, end up creating quite a bit of jobs, and um, you know, there's such a huge support pool here that. It's almost like no one business um, fails, it seems. Everyone's always helping each other out. They're shopping local. They're helping each other out. And, and those big businesses that do well um, are, are always donating, whether it's time or, or finances or resources. Um, it's just endless, the, the amount of support that we get. And, and it's not that we necessarily need all that um, financial support, but over the years, you know, we've, we've had big money donated just, just to help out on projects. And, and, um, and that's been great. And, but as far as like the daily operations of the mountain, um, we're, we're in the green, uh, since I've been around, which is like I said, eight, 10 years, um, I haven't seen a season where we've struggled. I mean, the only thing that'll hit us is if we get a lot of cold or, uh, not a lot of snow. We just don't get as many visits. But even in those years, we, we've still been in the green. So, um, so yeah, we, we've we've done like I said well. And uh, like a, the only thing that really hits us hard is if we get like a two weeks straight of uh, below zero, and we just don't get a lot of people that come. And kitchens not busy. And um, but this winter was. You know, the, the temperatures were real good. Um, so it, it's very dependent on, on, on weather. The one thing um, that is to our advantage is where we live, you know, up north. Uh, once we make our snow early in the season, usually, uh, you know, late November or actually mid, mid-December, early December, uh, we typically don't have to put our, take our guns out again. Um, with the exception of this winter, we did right before Christmas, we had to pull them out one more time. Um, so 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not a very expensive, you know, we don't have a big mountain. So snowmaking is really not a huge cost to us just because we, we only make snow on, um, on three trails and, and the other, uh, the other trails is all natural snow. And, you know, usually we have quite a good base. So. So it sounds like a lot of, of Lonesome Pine is self-sustaining. I'd imagine past revenue drives a lot of that. Your season pass was about $200 last year. Have you put that on sale yet for next year? Um, I, I can't remember if we, we actually put it on sale yet. I know we did discuss um, at one of our board meetings whether or not we were going to raise that price. And, I, and I, we decided not to. We're going to keep it as is only because we, we usually have kind of never increased too, too much. Um, but since we had that COVID year, uh, you know, we, we just kind of decided to, to leave it the same for next winter. And um, so we're going to be right at the same price point. And how big of a piece of your operating budget are those passes? How, how important are they to staying in the green, like you said? Yeah, I mean, that that's the business. Uh, we The only other kind of income sources would be, you know, we do a lot of uh, weddings in the summer in the lodge. It's quite popular. So we do have a lot of... Um, revenue there. I don't have an exact number, but it's, it's, it's enough. And then, um, I know a lot of the small mountains do have a, a bar and that we've had that for quite a few years. And that's actually helped out a lot as well. Um, so those weddings bring in some, some income for the rental and then the bar sales and, um, you know, those just even during the winter. So that's just always nice income to have. And, and we do have a local brewery that's been supplying us taps there and that's that's been uh pretty popular so yeah as far as the passes go um yeah it, it's it's our biggest chunk and uh seasons passes were were up this year but our daily passes were actually up even more than than years past so that that was a big boost as well so you mentioned the support of the local business community and their tradition of donating. Do they tend to identify a large project to donate with, like this groomer that we'll talk about in a little bit, or or, or do they just make general contributions, like $10,000 for the year to help with operations? No, we don't usually have, we do have actually one uh, donor and um, it, it, they donate to our rental uh, program every year mm. and they're not, they're not local. But, um, and that's the, the Sandy McIntyre fund and they, they help out with our, our rental fees every year. And so that, that's one that we, we always count on. Uh, but as far as donors that, that donate a certain amount every year, um, we don't really have that, but when we do have, you know, big expenditures, we, we always have seen, and I've heard stories of when they did a lodge expansion back in the nineties and you always have this one or handful of people that come in and say, okay, here's such, you know, this much, here's a check, you know, here's enough to get started. And we, we, it just seems to happen that way. Uh, we did a new retaining wall out in front of the lodge uh, a few years back. And uh, we had another one of those donations and, uh, and our local, one of the local banks here, Acadia Federal Credit Union um, has actually worked with us quite a bit for some, um, for some lending, you know, 0%, zero percent interest or 1% interest, things like that, you know? So that goes a long way. And, um, they all see the, you know, the, the need of this, this little mountain, what it brings to the community. So they just, um, all step up in support. So it's great. 
So your current fundraising drive, Mike, is around a replacement groomer. Talk about that machine. Uh, what is it? When did you get it? Why did you need it? Um, and and what is what is the fundraising drive for? Yeah. So talk a little bit about the groomer. Um, it, the old groomer we had was was actually a pretty good one. It was it was a piston bully uh, two eighty, I believe, and it was a ninety six. We bought it used, and it was still running pretty good, but that was with our old operator. <laughs> and, and as I mentioned, he was an old farmer and he could make miracles with anything. Right. So, right. So this year uh, we had new operators and, and they got in and there was, there were so many things that were just didn't were off, you know, they didn't work right. Or, and we couldn't understand how he operated it that well for so many years. So we slowly started uh, repairing stuff. And, and he also had the mentality back in the day when we struggled a little bit that they would just try to make it work, you know, Hey, we're going to put this together. And as long as it works, we're, we're not going to spend any money. We don't need to. So, so we did put a lot of um, money into the old groomer this early this winter. Um, some of the hydraulic valves and valving and uh, you know, we, we did invest a little bit in it and we had been talking about for the last three, four years that we, we need to look for a groomer. We need to look for a groomer. We need to start, and it just every year kind of got pushed back and pushed back. So this winter, um, when we saw those issues, um, and you know they, they were all repairable and they did get repaired, we just figured, hey, you know what? If we're going to be using this full time and and this is our main groomer, maybe we should be looking to to trade and and sell it or get something new. So we started looking. We were looking for some new stuff and. Um, it kind of felt like we were going to go down the same path of uh, kick it road, kick the can down the road again. And, um, but then one of our board members really got aggressive. Um, Sean Terrio, I'm going to name some names here just to get some people, uh, some credit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a huge team effort. So, um, mm-hmm. so he, he stepped up and started uh, really digging in and contacted our, um, our main uh piston bully dealer out of Auburn. And so he spoke with, uh, a few guys over there, you know, they really worked hard with us this winter. Uh, Dennis Kinsella is, is kind of the uh, sales guy. And, uh, Josh Lampert was more of, um, you know, he, he was kind of like the hands-on guy and those guys, I mean, I'll tell you what, they had a lot of patience with us. They worked with us and, uh, so Sean found this uh, groomer that they had been uh, trialing out at Sugarloaf with some new lags and they were just kind of testing them and see how they would work and things. And um, they said, Hey, this, this might be available. If you guys are interested, if you're really serious about buying, we could get it up to you. Um, but you kind of want to have a good idea that you're going to keep it. Cause we're, you know, we're like five and a half hours away that they, they offered to deliver it to us and they still had the brand new lags from, you know, the machine since they were trialing those other ones. Mm-hmm. So they agreed to bring it up and, and, you know, we, we kind of really had a serious, some serious discussions at the board level. And, um, it sounded like, you know, they were going to give us a great deal on this demo that was, I think only had 300 hours and, um, and, and the numbers seemed to make sense and everything was, you know, really, really looking good. And, and, and like I said, Sean put a lot of effort into it. So, um, we, we got that machine up here and, the only problem is we still had our old one and, uh, right. 
So we're like, okay, uh, do we really want two machines? And we're like, maybe we can use it as a backup. And we kind of kicked that around back and forth. So we had that machine, we were using it, the new one. And we, we kind of decided one night, say, Hey, you know what, let's, let's put the old one for sale see what happens. And, um, we had been shopping around, kind of looking at pricing and see what it would be worth. And, and we got some hits right away. And, um, believe it or not, there was a local snowmobile enthusiast here in, my, in Fort Kent that, uh, was real interested and he ended up buying it for a good price, but much more yeah. than what we were hoping to get for it. Okay. So, so the right. old machine's actually, um, still right in Fort Kent. It's not, not very far. And, uh, and he uses it to make, you know, snowmobile race tracks and, and things like that. So he actually hopped in it and drove it right down the snowmobile trail and brought it right home. So it's kind of cool. You didn't even that, have to hop it. beautiful. Yeah, it worked <laughs> out good. So, so then, you know, again, on the groomer, uh, we're like, okay, so we technically still don't own this thing. How are we going to pay for it? What are we, you know, we knew we could easily get a loan. We, we had a, quite a bit of money to put down on it if we wanted to. Um. We did decide to uh, really push hard on a USDA grant, um, and we got a lot of support there from uh, Steve Pelletier of the town and and his his uh, secretary, I'm forgetting her name, but she did a lot of work. I've, I've been told, um, and yeah, they they worked hard on that loan and the grant actually, and um, you know even to the point where we had some uh, some state representatives that one of them that worked for Susan Collins, I believe happened to be skiing at our hill. It's like, Hey, I want some information on your grant. You know, we, we'd like to help out. And so it sounds like we got a bunch of support from uh, some local, from some main legislators and, and we didn't even ask for it. They just kind of fell in our lap and um, it's looking pretty promising. Uh, the grant is just under a hundred grand and, uh, and, you know, be a big, a big chunk of our payment there if we get it. And, we're anxiously waiting. I know everything's behind with the COVID mess. And uh, we're supposed to know like pretty much by now, but we're within a couple of weeks here. We're, we're going to have an answer whether or not we're going to get that. Um, yeah. And just, just to touch on the fundraising, which is one of the questions you asked me. Um, again, on, on our local level with a, a little town of 4,000, um, we've raised and and have some commitments over some years here but we've raised close to two hundred thousand dollars for that groomer right now and it's like i, I can't I, I don't understand it blows my mind um so you know if we end up getting the grant on top of the fundraising i mean we're pretty much going to be almost clear and um it's it's just just that number right there kind of explains what kind of community we have and how much support we get and um everyone just steps up so so that's that's great it it also tells you how much a groomer costs i mean my god so uh, yeah you just outlined about 300 grand how much would this machine have been brand new and what was yeah. the price you got on it for being slightly used right yeah uh, I, I think the price is uh between 330 340 brand new um so yeah big money and and you know we have a couple of um guys on our on our board that are uh logging company owners and you know their their equipment is even more than that so they're they're kind of used to those big numbers and they're they're like they kind of really um one individual uh 
Jeremy Karen kind of helped us out a lot there with, with some of the, you know, some ideas for financing and, um, how to go about purchasing some, something that of that size, you know, so that, that was helpful, but, but yeah, the machines are expensive. Don't get me wrong. Um, but they're amazing. These new machines, this piston bully we got, it's a, it's a 400 model and, um, blew my mind, the features it has and ease of operation. And, um, and again, you know, that the guys at piston bully out of Auburn really, went out of their way customer service wise and, and, uh, financing even they, they kind of worked with us quite a bit. And, um, I can't remember our final price. It was just under three, I believe. Um, by the time we, we kind of worked in the price and it was a few years old, but you know, obviously not a lot of hours. So pretty much brand new. In comparison, how many hours did your old groomer have on it? That 1996? Yeah. I want to say it was in the eight, thousand range between seven and eight thousand something like that yeah 300 you're in good shape yeah Um, yeah. so if anyone's listening they want to kick you a little money to help purchase this groom or help pay it off how do they do that well actually um on our website uh lonesome pine i don't remember if it's lonesome pine trails you may have looked it up but it's uh lonesomepine.org i'm sure you'll find it there's actually a um, lonesomepines.org is that what it is? Okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yep. I'm looking at it right now. And yep. um, yeah, right when it pops up right there, uh, we need your help. Basically, it's kind of like a and it and it pops up where you can where you can select it, and um, I, I think it kind of takes you into uh, where you you could donate for that. Um, and you know, we we're not a five hundred one uh, type organization. We are a nonprofit, but if if someone would would want to or need to, uh, donate at that level. We do have another kind of entity that we can, we can use, uh, if, if someone wishes to, to donate as a 501-3C, I believe it is. So one more question related to this groomer, and I found this really interesting. So president Biden recently proposed an executive order that would do a bunch of different things to sort of increase competition across the landscape. One of those things was a, a right of repair for farmers to be able to repair their tractors because apparently these things are so sophisticated and and so complicated that the manufacturers don't allow the farmers to fix their own tractors. Do you have the same sort of issue with this piston bully where you have this $300,000 machine and it's so complicated you you either need to or are not allowed to repair it or or these just is it completely different than farming? Yeah, I, I believe it's different. I mean, it's not as sophisticated as some of those uh, GPS tracking type, you know, farm tractors. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, we, I would say that we should be, we are allowed to work on it. Um, it's not like we cannot touch it at all. Um, actually, we, we did buy kind of like a warranty on the, on the engine where we could bring it to one of our local, um, you know, truck dealers that, that can work on the engine. Um, so it does not have to go to piston bully or it does not have to be a piston bully tech only that can work on it. Um, so yeah, no, we, we, we can easily, you know, do maintenance on it and, and everyday, th- everyday things. But at the same time, uh, piston bully does have, offer great service where the, their guys are willing to come up and, and do whatever we need if we need it, you know? So yeah, it's not, it's not restricted as far as maintenance goes. 
Okay, great. Let's talk about your, your T-bar. So that is your alpha lift, no chair lift at Lonesome Pine. Right. I, the first question I have about this T-bar, Mike, because I haven't been able to find this online and no one seems to know. So that's a 1960s era hall. Yes. Uh, Lonesome Pine installed it used in the mid-1980s. Do you know where that lift came from? Yeah, I actually, I tried to get, I did know recently up until, and I, I tried to get that answer this morning because I knew you might ask. <laughs> I don't know which hill it came from. <laughs> Um, I, I want to say it was in Vermont somewhere and, uh, I wish I remembered which, which hill it came from, but, and I believe they, they pulled it out. Uh, it would have been in the early to mid eighties and brought it, brought it over to Lonesome Pine. And, um, yeah, so like I said, somewhere in Vermont and, um, I, I do have quite a bit of stories on that lift, but I don't know if you have other questions before I, I get ranting onto that. <laughs> No, no. Let's let's talk about Saddleback. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think folks are aware of, of what what happened to the Cup Celtic T bar when Saddleback pulled it out. So tell us. Yeah, so it was it was a great great story. Um, we have uh, you know just like every mountain has uh, lift inspectors, right? And and they they travel all in New England basically, and, and sometimes further. So there's one individual that that comes up to our place quite a bit. His name is Scott Shanahan. He's actually the owner of Lost Valley in uh, Auburn as well. Oh, so he does um, lift inspections for uh, all sorts of lifts. And he also does um, NDT testing, so non-destructive testing. So he'll test out welds and, and uh, steel um, infrastructure on lifts. And so he, he's pretty, he's been around. And what's nice with that is he goes to all these, all these hills all over the place. And he knows like, who's getting rid of what and when it's going to be available. And so he kind of gave a tip to our, um, our maintenance guy a couple of years ago. Say, Hey, here's Saddleback. When they open up, they're going to be tearing down that T bar. And he knows that it's the same model as ours. So that ball kind of started rolling and, and we did have someone that had reached out to um, Andy Shepard uh, early on. This would have been last year at some point. And we were kind of waiting to hear if Andy was going to bite on it and, and, Again, like you know, Andy had a lot of time up here in Fort Kent, so he does have a lot of ties here when he was running Maine Winter Sports. So we really weren't hearing back. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to reach out to Andy myself and and see where they're at with that T-bar and, and try to get the ball rolling. So I did that, and, and he um, got back to me pretty quick. He put me in touch with, uh, with his guys over there. Um, and, you know, one thing – uh, led to another and, and they basically just, you know, Hey, you know, come down you really need to just come take a look and see what we got. Um, one of the guys I, I dealt with a lot over email first was Jason Bellamy, which uh, I believe he's the operations manager and Jared Emerson also very involved in, in the operation. And then um, Jim Quimby, I also dealt with him quite a bit. So those three guys along with Andy were instrumental in, um, in making this happen. So I, I did take a trip down to Saddleback and this is when the lift was still up. Um, the towers were up, the cable was down and I just kind of scoped it out and verified that it was a, a hall 1000. It's a, that model. Uh, and yeah, everything looked good. It was decent shape. And, um, so we kind of set a date. They were kind of on a tight schedule. They were building their their new uh, quad at the time. So I kind of worked with them say, Hey, just let me know when it's a good time for you guys and we'll bring a crew down and we'll, we'll go, go at it. 
so we were expecting to have to pull out towers and take the stuff apart and and um we got there um i can't remember when it was it was probably october sometime of last year and they had hauled all the towers down to kind of the the base of of the t-bar and um yeah yeah they, they helped us out big time and you know they had all their tees kind of stacked up down at the base maintenance garage and we had a ton of tees for that unit and um so that weekend was great we we got there spent the night in rangeley uh spent a big day on saturday we had a big crew guys uh trailers pickups we had a dump little dump truck trailer and uh we actually had one of our local logging contractors uh, jared jared sidwa jrs logging and uh he came down with his tractor trailer and logging rig nice. wow. <laughs> so we're like oh man we can pull just about everything we need so that worked out awesome and and he just he did that you know took a day off from from his busy schedule and and came out with his son actually um and uh, his son andre and and actually there's a pretty cool story with that because our current t-bar that they pulled out from vermont well their jared's father which would have been andre's grandfather had gone down mm-hmm. to pull that t-bar out and bring it up here oh wow Amazing. So it was like a full, full circle thing. And, um, I thought was, yeah, yeah. It was such a great story. So, yeah. So we, we spent some good time up there. Uh, Jared was great. Let us use his equipment. They had some, they had an excavator rented. They had, uh, you know, some lifts that they just, yep, take it, here are the keys, do what you got to do. And it just was, was awesome. They did, uh, they just bent over backwards for us. There's a couple areas where they had some ditching that, that we couldn't cross over and they, went and flattened those out for us. He <laughs> just, whatever we needed. So yeah, we, we picked it up and, uh, pr- pretty much got like almost everything. Um, we even brought the towers and not that we really needed towers, but we brought them up anyway. And bull wheels, they even had spare bull wheels out in their, their boneyard that we, we grabbed. Um, the only thing we, we missed, we tried to get up and, and grab their top bull wheel and it, it ended up cracking on the way out. So we had ah. to leave it. Yeah. But we had a, okay. another spare. So, so it worked out. Um, yeah. So we hauled it all up here. We had, uh, we had purchased a, a used tractor trailer enclosed uh, box there from a local trucking company that almost gave it away to us. Very, very cheap. So we stored a bunch of the parts in there and, and, uh, I think we used, oh, we used a, a bunch of teas this winter from, from Rangeley, just, it was quicker. They were ready. So we just kind of swapped them out and, and now we just got to kind of repair our, our old ones and pick away at those. But, but yeah, that's, that's been great. Um, and, and the T-bar, you know, now it's, it's 1960s, but we kept joking about it. And then it's going to last us till our grandkids are, are out there <laughs> sleeping at this point. So it'll be there a while, I think. Yeah. So were there any key components bull wheels, anything else that, that you haven't had time to replace yet, but do you intend to take those ones from Saddleback and replace ones that may be worn out at Lonesome Pine? Yeah. Um, our bull wheels are good. They've been well-maintained over the years. Um, and the motor, the electric motor is, uh, is good, is in good shape. It had been kind of, uh, we had a, a kind of a breakdown maybe five, six years ago and we had it rebuilt real quick. It wasn't like a full overhaul, but kind of cleaned it up. So 
we did get that motor from them, which is identical to ours, which is, you know, it's great. And, um, we do have some, some shivs that, that we need to change this summer. Um, a couple of the walking beams are on the, on the top of the tees that, you know, have some, some worn pins and bushings that we'll probably swap out. So what's nice with that is once we pull out our parts, we can go and send those to a machine shop and we'll have a the saddleback parts installed. So it doesn't take us down, you know, so kind of works out great with all the spare parts. We can just kind of keep rolling. Works out great. Works out good. Did Saddleback donate that lift to you or did they sell it to you? Yeah, they, they donated it and um, yeah, it was awesome. So they, they were kind of hoping to spread the wealth, I guess with, cause there are, I would say, I don't know how many, but there's definitely two or three other uh, small areas like ours that, that have a similar lift that, that could have used some parts um, but I think they just didn't have that volunteer base that we had to go up and, and pull it out. Um, so I think, I think there's some other Hills that did go and grab a few things. Um, uh, but we definitely got the bulk of it and they kind of, kind of made a gentleman's agreement that if some of those Hills ever needed something critical that they could, they could call on us and, and we'd definitely, we, we'd help them out for sure. Cause like I said, we, we probably have three we got two spare bottom bull wheels and we got one spare top uh, and, and a, just a ton of, you know, parts, uh, walking beams, bushings and, and uh, wheels. I mean, it's just been great. So, so yeah, so that, that was one of the reasons they wanted it to go to small mountains and um, we just happened to be the one that showed up and, and grabbed it. Um, but not to say that we won't, you know, help other mountains out when they need parts at some point. And what kind of shape was that T-bar in, Mike? Because Saddleback had been closed for five years. My understanding is that uh, the Barry family did have someone there on site maintaining the lifts in a, in a very minimal way. W- was it overgrown or, or, or had it been cared for in a way that, that nature had not started to take it back? Yeah, I mean, it was in good shape. All I know, I was told that uh, Jim Quimby had told me that, you know, their final season of, of operation, um, they did have their... Uh, bottom mechanism kind of wash out at one point and they had to shore it up and, and, and get it kind of straightened out just to finish off their season. Um, and I did ask about their cable. Their cable was also taken out of service. So, you know, we would have grabbed that had it been in better shape, but no, it hadn't grown in. Um, and they did, you know, as far as there wasn't really anything to maintain on it, but it was kind of cut around and it was accessible. So, yeah, you, you could tell that they weren't just going to scrap it. I mean, they were going to try to repurpose it or, or, you know, donate like they did. And um, so, yeah, they did a good job kind of keeping an eye on it over those years that they were closed. So do you think that T-bar is the right alpha lift for, for Lonesome Pine? If someone came along and wanted to donate an old double chair or something, would you be interested in that? Or or, or is a T-bar just it, it, it's simpler, uh, simpler machine, uh, more manageable to maintain? Yeah, I mean, it, it does come up once in a while. People ask, hey, did you ever think about putting a, a chair? I think it did come up before my time where they, they thought about it and um, it got kicked around and and it just never kind of materialized. Um, but with our volunteer base, um, if someone was to donate the chairlift to us, we, we could make that work <laughs> for sure. 
But I don't think that we would go out and, and buy even a used one only because our T-bar just serves our little mountain very well. Um, but again, a donated lift might be a different story because we could throw <laughs> some volunteers together and, you know, a little bit of concrete and get that up and running. But um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's unique. I know uh, Herman Mountain out in Bangor is a smaller mountain than ours, but not by much. Um, and they, they do have a, a two man and their T bars basically they don't use it, but when they get real crowded, they'll fire it up and, um, and they'll use it and it's right next door to it. So yeah, it's not something we'd rule out, you know, it's a possibility. Well, you hear that big ski areas. If anyone's listening, has an extra chairlift sitting around, give Mike a call. Um, I, I'm actually a fan of T bars myself, Mike. I, I, I like yeah. how, uh, how they're kind of connected to the snow and they don't have yep. wind issues and everything else. Um, you also have another lift project that you would like to do uh, to replace the handle toe. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is, this is kind of in the early stages. Um, we're, we're, we're looking to eventually uh, with, you know, some more community input um, again, cause we're member owned, right? Uh, we, mm-hmm. we would like to put in a tubing park. It's something that we've been t- talking about for the last couple of years, and, and uh, we seem to have a pretty good location for it. Um, so that would require another handle toe to get that running. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things we thought about, and I know a handle toe would be much cheaper than a even a used carpet, um, but one of the things we thought about was relocating that our existing handle toe uh, that we use at our beginner run over to where we'd put our tubing run and then replace that handle toe with a, um, with a conveyor or a carpet. So, you know, I've been to a lot of places that, that do have them at the beginner areas. And, um, you know, that's, it's kind of like, it's great. You know, it's, it, it's night and day when you're learning, especially. Um, so that is something we're exploring. Um, I do that same person I spoke, spoke about earlier, Scott at, uh, Lost Valley. He actually told me he may have one used one, uh, for sale. So I'm still kind of hopeful that, that he may reach back out. Hopefully he listens to this podcast here. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it's something that we would, I think would be a great addition to the mountain. Um, and, uh, I think it would be a big hit and then it would free up that, that handle toe to do our or uh, tubing run. So for, if you're looking at the trail map, where yeah. would that tubing operation be? Yeah, there's a, an area, um, it's almost kind of parallel to the parking lot, um, way over on the right hand side. So it would be skiers left, but lookers right. Um, mm-hmm. There's a flat area, somewhat, it's not real flat, but it's not very steep at all. That we actually don't use. Um, we, we, whip, we whip around on skiers left, um, on the far side there. And we kind of take this little cutoff, which totally skips that area. So we really don't use it for anything right now. And, um, you know, it's not too steep, so we could easily work it where we could kind of build it up if we needed to, to, if we needed that, that elevation. Um, so it's really a great, it's a perfect spot where it wouldn't take away from anything that we're, that we would be using because we actually don't use that space right now. So that would be skiers left of Duval as you're heading down. That's right. Yeah. And and then with the with the magic carpet replace, do you envision that replacing the handle toe right where it is on the bunny slope, same length, everything, same pitch? Yeah, it would it would probably end up being very close to the same length. Our, our current length is around 500 feet. 
Um, and and uh, you know, I'm, I'm hearing that most typical carpets, well, you know, I know there's all different lengths, but anything over 500 feet, you, you start to get into, you know, much bigger. Uh, so yeah, we're hoping to be right around 500. So as you're, as we're talking about expanding your facilities, possibly adding this tubing park, you told me something interesting, which is that the town had agreed to move the skating rink there. Uh, so talk a little bit about that project and how that diversifies and makes this more of a true winter sports center for the community. Well, that the skating rink um, has been quite a long uh, conversation piece on the board level and with the town. Um, it actually, we, we abut uh, the U- University of Maine, Fort Kent property. And um, in order to have enough room to put that skating rink where we want it, which would be on the east end of the parking lot, we would have um, needed to kind of either gain some access to their, a little piece of their property or, mm-hmm. you know, purchase it or, or, so either way they ended up, um, donating it to us that, mm-hmm. that small sliver of, of land, but, but it, like anything else at the state level, um, it took quite a long time to get that transaction to happen. Um, you know, with the lawyers and everything. So we did finally, um, finalize that. And, uh, you know, the, the skating rink in our town right now, it, it's in a, it's in a pretty good location. It's kind of downtown. Uh, but there's really not a whole lot of activity there at the moment. Um, there's a small canteen, I guess, but really doesn't get all that much use. So we've kind of been running the numbers and, um, and we, we strongly feel, uh, you know, a, a lot of the board members feel that it's going to bring in um, more foot traffic to the lodge, uh, potentially more skier visits, you know, with these families coming in. Some of them may want to skate, some may want to ski. And, and if we do the tubing, um, you know, obviously some will want to do that too. So we're kind of looking at it as, as a standalone, it, it probably wouldn't make sense, but as a uh, total uh, business model there for, for the whole mountain and the lodge, I think, uh, I think it would be worth, worth us doing. So, um, you know, not everyone's in favor um, but we're, we're hoping to, uh, you know, really get some support and, and try to try to just show that, Hey, you know, we want people to skate. We don't, you know, we want them to enjoy the outdoor sports. And one of the unique things about our Hill is, is, you know, we, we have, um, the Nordic center that kind of, you have access to it from our, our lodge. They do have their own lodge as well, but, you know, so we could, we could potentially have quite a, quite a winter sports, uh, area there right right at our facility so something we're getting closer to all the time and uh, we we do seem to have quite a bit of support on that right now all right well i wish you the best of luck with that Let, let's talk about your snowmaking a little bit you referred to this earlier you have a a volunteer crew for snowmaking which i thought was really interesting this is something that's usually handled by professionals that, that is not easy work uh, but tell us about your snowmaking fleet what do you have what kind of guns um, and and how do you run that operation yeah, so this is another one of those projects um, that that was done, and this is before my time, uh, but I've heard a lot about it, where a lot of the local businesses really uh, kicked in and, and helped donate uh, time and their, and resources. Um, Diggle Oil Company was was one of those companies that apparently donated quite a bit of 
um, equipment there, you know, compressor. I'm not sure exactly how much of it they did, but we do have a compressor. It's, we have 10 tower guns and they're the portable type kind of on skis. Um, so we basically just do one trail at a time and, you know, we, we make enough snow until we're down on that trail and then we'll move over, um, to the next trail. So, so yeah, so like I said earlier, we, we typically start mid December, uh, and obviously earlier if, if the cold is there and we do have like in the past, we had our one key guy. So last season we still had our, our man, Daryl Bossy that had been there forever. And he was real good. He can kind of coordinate and, uh, and, you know, he knew what we needed, but we definitely needed bodies. So that was always, um, with scheduling, we never knew when we could start. We'd always wait for that cold snap to really push some snow. Um, so we do have quite a few board members. Uh, I would say at least four or five of us that are heavily involved. Um, we have a couple guys that work shifts that are available during the day. Um, and we did have one paid employee that would stay overnight a lot of times. And then on weekends, we'd, we'd have some of us guys do the weekends. Um, so believe it or not, I mean, we're making snow with like an average of two or three guys <laughs> to make snow on, on a trail at a time. And, um, it's been, it's always been a big job. I mean, I like last season, the last couple of winters, I kind of planned my vacation around the cold. So I, I took a week vacation. I wait for that cold week. Cause okay, I'm taking my <laughs> vacation this week. And, um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I just try to help out as much as I can, but there are a lot of times, uh, during the day where a bunch of us are working that they do lack a little bit of help, but somehow we've managed to, to make it work. Um, what do you, what do you, you said yeah. you have 10 guns total? Yeah, we've we got 10. Yep. And, and which trails do you make snow on? So it would be the founders, the main, and then that reservoir trail is where we were making snow. And do you ever veer from that or, or those other trails are only open when you have the natural snow to support that? Yeah, we, we wait, you know, for natural to open the other ones. Um, we have opened them a little early and just kind of warn people that, Hey, this is natural snow. So kind of, kind of got to watch for, you know, obstacles, I guess. But, but yeah, um, I think this year we did end up opening a trail or two um, before we were done making snow. So that kind of worked out. We were able to make snow while the T-bar was running and, um, you know, we had those two trails available. So yeah. And this winter was a challenge. I think for all new England, we didn't get his hard, but we had that rain right before Christmas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And luckily we made a ton of snow that first time around. So we still had quite a bit. Um, but we did have to do, uh, something that I don't believe was ever done before, which was make snow on our T-bar run. Um, <sighs> Yeah. So that was a challenge. Uh, you know, we had the cables in the way, the T's in the way, and it was just uh, constant babysitting. So, but we made it, we made it happen and uh, we had plenty of snow in our T-bar this year. So, so that was good. Um, but yeah, we, we didn't get a lot of natural snow though, but that snow we made really, really helped us out this winter. Yeah, you don't have a big fleet, but you are far north. So what you make probably sticks around when you have a normal winter. And, and I was actually impressed that you seem to stay open pretty late this year. It's, it's kind of hard to tell from your site when you actually close. But what was your closing date this year? Yeah, it was uh, it was April 
three actually. Wow. And uh, yeah, wow. we probably could have stayed open later. I think a lot of times what happens is by that time, um, the interest we're starting to lose the interest of, of the, you know, the members and skiers it's a little bit. So it kind of makes it a little less worthwhile to stay open. We definitely could. Uh, there's a lot of seasons where we could have stayed open till mid mid April. Um, but by that time, it's just people are, are ready to hang up the skis and, and be done for the season. But, but yeah, April 3 was our, our closing date this winter. Lonesome Pine has a, an operating schedule that it seems like you've stuck with for a while, Wednesday night, Friday night, uh, during the day, Saturday and Sunday. Is that more of a function of your community organization? That's probably as much as you can afford to operate. Or is that a function of it's a small community, there's only so much interest, and it doesn't make sense to be open seven days a week? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a little bit of everything. Um, it's worked very well. And, you know, that we actually, um, on, on Monday nights, we, the race teams kind of, kind of cool. We open up, uh, the Hill for a couple hours and we have basically some, some parents or volunteers help run the T-bar, uh, while we train. So we do that Monday night for a while in the winter, but yeah, as, as far as the regular schedule, um, it, it seemed to work. Uh, I don't, I don't think that doing any more, we probably don't have that real heavy skier base that you would have at, at bigger resorts. Um, that seems to work for us. And, um, we actually, uh, did try out this winter opening Saturday night. So we would stay open from 9am to 9pm. And, um, that's, uh, actually been really well received and it did well. Um, we ended up, you know, doing pretty well with the bar and things like that. And we had a lot of visits. So that, that was something we tried and it worked out. Yeah. So let's talk about last season, just in general, it, it was obviously a, a challenging season for everybody in the ski industry. I think it was challenging for skiers as well, just to get used to and adapt new habits. Uh, but from your point of view, I know you said you were busier than normal. Um, how did last season go for Lonesome Pine? Um, yeah, it, it, it went really well. Um, it there were some challenges, obviously, like, like everyone else had, um, for us, it got compounded because of the, the lack of our experience. So, um, had we had our, our regular staff, um, we would have been done even better, but, but like I said earlier, we, we pulled it off. Um, there were some changes obviously to the lodge. We had to lower our capacity quite a bit. Um, it did affect our kitchen, uh, quite a bit just because, you know, we, a lot of people didn't come to the lodge as much. Um, we did serve a little bit. We kind of just stuck with the state guidelines and, um, but as far as overall, you know, skiing didn't affect us at all. Uh, but it did affect the, um, like I said, the, the kitchen and, and things like that. So, yeah. So uh, as I mentioned in the intro, Lonesome Pine is right on the U.S.-Canada border. And when I spoke with Jay Peak in October uh, and then Titus just last month, both of those ski areas are similar position, not quite as close as, as Lonesome Pine is, but they rely heavily on Canada for business. Did that affect Lonesome Pine at all, having the border closure? Uh, actually, no, it didn't. Um, see, since we have that other mountain in, um, in New Brunswick, you know, a lot of those skiers that we did have, you know, we do have a few that come over to Fort Kent still at Lonesome Pines. 
but a lot of them also went to uh, New Brunswick, although this winter they were much more strict and they were not open very much at all this winter. Um, but what happened is a lot of those Madawaska skiers, uh, that neighboring town that would typically go to Canada, we ended up gaining quite a few of those oh. um, over at Lonesome Pine. So it actually helped us more than anything. Interesting. So believe it or not, yeah, it was, it was actually better. Yeah. Is that a bigger hill? I'm not, I'm not familiar with that New Brunswick hill. Yeah, it is bigger. Um, I can't remember how many trails, uh, but yeah, it's a decent size, and um, you know it, it. You know, it's kind of probably I would say three times as far as trails go, and, and it's got more vertical than we have. Um, so yeah, it's it's a little bit more of a hill. They got they got a quad, and they used to have it. They had a two man that they kind of took out of operation. They did have a T bar. That one also took out. So they only have that quad now. Um, but yeah, it's a good size. And I think the Madawaska skiers, uh, typically prefer going there. Uh, but the border crossing has become harder and harder to, uh, to do. I mean, right now we still can't cross, so who knows what's going to happen this winter. We'll have to see how that goes. I'm so fascinated by that whole Eastern Canada ski scene. There, there's so many ski areas. I've only been to a handful of them and I, they're so dense. I, I would love to just take a month sometime and just skip around because they're, they're, they look like they're really interesting looking areas. They look a lot of them kind of really old school. And then I think they just don't get as much freeze thaw as we do. So I imagine the conditions would stay a little better. And um, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a world I want to get to know once I've worked my way through New England. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really from, from where we are, um, those bigger resorts in, in Quebec, um, you know, like Tremblant and, uh, and there's, uh, St. Anne and, uh, there's a few other big, bigger ones that, uh, are actually closer than for us to go to like a Sunder river or a Rangeley, mm-hmm. like three, mm-hmm. three, four hours at the most. So it's kind of unique, kind of, kind of neat to be able to, to hit those, but, Again, it's been challenging in the last year or so. That's yeah, well, hope, hopefully they reopen the border, not, not just for your skiing purposes, but so you can get back and, and see your family or, or, or whatever it is. I don't know how frequently you usually go back to Canada, but that's got to be a drag to be locked yeah. out of there. Yeah, I definitely have some family there. My my mother is from, from that side of the of the river, so I have some family there. So it's been it's been a challenge. Yeah. yeah. All right, Mike. Well, uh, last question for you today, and it's the same question I've asked every scary operator that I've spoken with this year. Did you learn anything from revamping your COVID operations that you will carry into next season? Because I know it was hard to reset everything and do everything different, but I think it was a valuable exercise for the ski industry because it, it, it was a forced reset and, and made them think about things that, well, maybe it wasn't so efficient to do it this way before. Maybe this is a better idea. So, so is there anything that you changed that you're going to carry over into next year? Um, yeah, I think one of the, one of the things that, that stood out the most, we did try a little bit more outdoor activities where we, we put a couple of fire pits out front of the lodge and that was a big hit. And, and that's something that, um, we're definitely going to continue doing because we had a lot of people just hanging out there. Um, other than that, I mean, there really wasn't that many, uh, items operational wise that, that, that we would change or that we would kind of adopt from what we learned last winter. Um, but again, I, I think like many other areas, um, I'm hopeful that this winter has created a lot of new skiers and, uh, that they're going to continue to, you know, to, to do it. I'm sure that a lot of them, you know, got gear and they, they got a taste of it 
And they're probably thinking, well, now that the restrictions are mostly lifted, um, probably even be a better experience. So I think that'll be positive for, for all the areas. Yeah, that's a good point, Mike. I think, I think if you took a love to skiing when you had to wear a mask and all these other inconveniences, then I think the regular version of it will be quite a liberating experience for you. So, um, well, well, Mike, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I, I really love the story of Lonesome Pine and I'm so grateful that you shared it with me and all the, all the listeners. Uh, I really hope to get up there at some point. I have not been up there, but uh, it is on my list. And and sometime when I'm in Maine, I'm going to make a point to do it. All right. Great. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'll be, I'll be listening in to more of your shows. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. That is Mike Lavertu, president of the board of directors of Lonesome Pine, Maine. That was awesome. I really enjoyed that. These little places are so vital to skiing, and it is so important that they have invested citizens willing to give their time and energy to take care of them. We can all learn a lot from Fort Kent and how that community has come together to get that thing done. A couple of notes here. Mike did some research on that T-bar after we talked, and it turns out it came from Victor Constant Ski Area at West Point in New York. That was after they installed their triple chair in the early 1980s. He also wanted to make the point that Lonesome Pine also races against Camden Snow Bowl in addition to the other ski areas he mentioned. I'd like to feature more community hills like this. A few months ago, I made the point on the end of the podcast in this section that if you were in a ski area anywhere in the United States, no matter how small, I wanted to talk to you. Mike heard that and he reached out to me and we set that interview up immediately. So I mean this sincerely. If you run a ski area in this country, I want to hear that story. And I'll throw Canada in there too. Hell, I'll go with the whole world. There's a lot of skiing out there and most of us will never experience most of it firsthand. But that doesn't mean that we don't want to learn about it and that we don't care about it. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. Also, follow the storm on Instagram and Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.